Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hello, my name is Jeremy Lightman, and welcome to our Thirsty Podcast here on the Raised with Jesus podcast series. We're always thankful for Pastor Hagen and his uh, giving us a platform to talk and discuss things and study scripture. Uh, listen, everybody, uh, thank you for so long faithfully putting up with my puns on Z names and uh, Mike. Michael uh, names, but I am out. I'm done. I'm I'm gonna be finished with that. And uh, my co-host, his name is Michael Zarling, Pastor Michael Zarling. And uh, today we welcome our guest, Step Guggen, uh, from Toledo, Ohio. He's from. He's actually from my hometown where I was born, and uh, holds a dear place in my heart. So thank you for joining us, uh, Mr. Guggen. Thank you for having me. So, Steph, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, I know we were talking a little bit before we started recording about uh, you being a millwright, and Jeremy and I were really interested in that because you're the first millwright that we've had as a guest. I'm going to guess you're probably the first millwright that Jeremy or I have ever met. So if you want to explain what that is. A millwright is, is a, a, a skilled trade. And you deal with uh, ball mills, you deal with various kinds of uh, engines and various industries uh, that uh, particularly th- throughout the Midwest, I mean, it's, it's uh, uh, industry rich. Our focus was on large industrial conveyors and conveyor systems and conveyor belting. We worked on uh, uh, light traders, thousand footers, uh, by the way, their their conveyor uh, belt systems could be ten feet wide. Uh, we worked in lines. It was down three miles and seven miles in. Uh, we worked on uh, quarries, uh, large uh, railroads like Norfolk Southern, uh, CSX, and other other things. And that was largely our our focus. We also did a, a more technical. Uh, work with uh, U.S. Gypsum, and we were the preferred uh, maintenance uh, group for service for the United States Gypsum. You know, uh, have you ever done, like, uh, any work with, um, or know anything about, like, um, you just got me thinking of conveyor belts, and um, I always love the luggage return thing at an airport. Have you ever worked with anything like that? No, that's uh, a little too small. Ah, okay. That's a little. That's a little too small. That the, the many of the things are kind of enormous, and they had to rig everything to in order to move move things around, uh, hoist and uh, shift, and you needed cranes and uh, those. Say for uh, the conveyor belts on a, on a thousand foot. Lake freighter would could weigh up to you know thirty thousand pounds, you know each roll, and you could have, have at least four rolls uh, to ins- put in. Uh, so we had to know signaling and, and and virtually all that stuff. See, I, whenever I think of stuff like that, the little kid in me just wants to say. Uh, I, I drive by that too all the time. You know, you see conveyor belts that are 
lifting or moving or shooting coal out or something. And, and I'm like, the little kid in me says, I, I'd like to get on that and ride that. Uh, would that be ill-advised? Would that be very ill-advised? <laughs> very ill-advised. Very ill-advised. Uh, well, that's interesting. You said that, Jeremy, because as Step is talking about elevators and so forth, I think of the elevators I grew up with on the farm, which were not very, very large. They're going from the outside of the barn, from the hay wagon up into the mow, and those we did end up climbing on, which I would advise not doing still, but they're not the kind of elevators that Step is talking about. These are uh, small little elevators that, you know, two or three of us could pick up and move or wheel around uh, and so forth. Nothing like what you're talking about. For, for instance, uh, the 10-foot-wide the, uh, conveyor belts on a lake freighter or a thousand foot lake freighter will run at about 800 feet a minute. So you, <laughs> you don't want to be riding that. <laughs> oh, 800. Okay. Yeah. That that's pretty speedy. Um, but if you wore, if you wore, a, if you wore a helmet, you'd probably be fine, Jeremy. <laughs> and padding. Um, yeah. I know I, before we started recording, you were talking about some of your travels related to uh, your um, your your trade work, and uh, you said that you met a lot of interesting people and got to know some real salt of the earth characters. What what can you tell us about some of that? Well, I mean, they're not cluttered with uh, the kind of uh, intellectual or nuts and bolts scriptural things, so Greek and Hebrew, Latin, German, things like that. But they're just trying to make their families uh, uh, good, make make the, uh, their neighbors uh, helpful. Uh, they're just they're just trying to be decent Americans. They don't have any interest in, in uh, the larger scope of uh, what's going on right now, uh, largely politically. But um, they're just decent people. They might not be. Christian, but they're good Americans. They're good people. They're good salt of the earth people. Where all have you traveled in your in that line of work? Florida, Georgia, Virginia, Kentucky, Illinois, Wyoming, all around the Detroit and the Great Lakes area. All that sailed, sailed on the uh, thousand foot lake freighters from. From Detroit, basically to to uh, uh, Superior, up to Superior and Duluth, and back uh, all around uh, Mexico a couple of times. So, so with that uh, millwright work you've been, we've been talking about, I know you're also interested in theology and philosophy. So, what's gotten you into the theology and philosophy? in addition to everything else with your trade? Well, actually, I was uh, actually trained in that. And I uh, practiced it for a, for a period. And I just never stopped. Just never stopped. Although it was more of an avocation, obviously, than, than a vocation. And I, I continue it today. So I mean, my, Hebrew and, my Hebrew and Greek is right here. It's, it's a 
it's a little rusty, but <laughs> well, if you want to geek out about Hebrew and Greek, Jeremy will help you out with that. I'm sure. That would be fine. So I know you're a member then now at resurrection. What, what kind of things do you do with pastor Hagen there at the congregation using your theology and philosophy? We just confer fraternally, fraternally. Uh, I try to keep out of his way. <laughs> uh, I'm 72 years old. So, uh, it's time for some other folks to to step in and uh but i'm i'm happy to 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 answer a question here and there if i can be helpful when i know that pastor hagan cuz i have lots of conversations with him uh, several times a week and he's a pretty deep individual you strike me as a pretty deep individual you must have some good theological discussions yeah. yeah, we do, we do. Yeah, I. Uh, the the worst part is we're both Orthodox. You know? <laughs> Confessional. Well, there's never any. There's there's never any tension because you're you're always in agreement. Yes, which is delightful. Mm-hmm. You know, it's delightful in this this uh, time. It's uh a work of the Holy Spirit. No one can agree in, in uh, theological matters uh, at this level, at biblically, apart from the Holy Spirit. That's all his work. So I guess I I didn't understand. Uh, you called it an avocation. And uh, so were, were you all, at what point did you receive your training uh, in your trade? In the ni- uh, end of the 90s, end of the 90s, 98, 99 or so. Was that after or before you went to, uh, you, you, you mentioned after. going to Concordia? Yes, Concordia Ann Arbor. And then I went to uh, Concordia St. Louis. I was interested in exegesis at that time. I uh, studied under Horace Hummel, took 10 classes of his. Uh, had hoped to uh, study under Charlemagne, but he passed away. Mm. And we were fortunate enough uh, later on to have Norman Nagel come along in the dogmatics. We have his uh, dogmatic labs. You, it's funny you use the word exe, exegesis or exegetical, and my sophomore son in his religion class had their their teacher. It's not me. It's a different religion teacher at our high school is teaching them the difference between exegetics and isagogics. And uh, I thought, man, for sophomores in high school, that's pretty impressive to be biting off that that and chewing on it. Um, how would either of you um, define exegetics or isagogics? The isagogics is the who, when, where, and what uh, kind of uh, overview of, of uh, you know, Bible study. Exegesis is the historical grammatical part in terms uh, of, uh, I think you'd want to call it, I guess they'd call it today, intertextuality. With that, two things I I think of with the exegesis 
uh, and even I, uh, I see, I Jesus is, uh, John Brug, who's a member at, here at water of life. And Jeremy and I had him at the seminary. He's written a book recently and it's on, it's on Amazon. And what's interesting is he's because he's the general editor of the EHV translation. He took a lot of his notes and then put them into a book format. And so it's just kind of interesting when you read it. Uh, I was texting his wife, Irene, as I was reading it and going, I can hear John's wisdom here, but also John's dry humor. And just to, for our listeners, if you're really interested in the kind of things we're talking about here to understand why the editors of the EHV chose the different translations. Like one of them that I, I was geeking out on was manatee skin, as opposed to all the other previous translations were leather, you know, you know, aquatic leather. And I'm not going to go into why he, he said all those things, but it's, it's just interesting. And then a second thing is I had the privilege this weekend to take two of our sophomores from our church and from Shoreland to the seminary in Mequon for a taste of ministry where they got to sit in the classroom and learn about exegesis and eisegesis and so forth. And uh, on the way home, uh, I asked the two, the two young men, you know, what they thought of it. And AJ, who's always wanted to be a pastor, he said, well, I'm more convinced than ever they want to be a pastor. Josiah, who went because he's had a lot of family and friends tell him he'd make a good pastor. Uh, I asked him and he said, nope, I'm convinced I don't want to be a pastor. And it was because of the languages, just because the languages are tough. Well, uh, as long as you bring that up, I actually had a conversation with Josiah this morning where I told him that you told me that. And, uh, I said, actually, he's a very good language student. And, uh, he, um, the thing about languages is it's all about getting to know people and communicating with people. And this is how people communicate with each other. And with, uh, he's taking German right now, but, uh, if he would take Greek or Hebrew later, it's just a matter of learning. This is how people communicated with each other long ago. Um, and, uh, we, we got, we have gone really far afield here. We're supposed to be interviewing our guest. Uh, well, I apologize. This is this is fine for me. Uh, the the uh, uh, I tutored tutored Hebrew. Uh, I tutored Greek also at, at uh, Concordia uh, St. Louis, and uh, I always told this the, the uh, my fellow classmates. I tell them, look, if those little baby Israelis can speak this, you can too. You just got to put your mind to it and make sh- it's a language. And just put you got to get it in your tongue, and uh, it helped. It helped the, the uh, those uh, the more accelerated or didn't have those issues uh, didn't need that. But it the more senses you can get involved in in a language, the better off you're going to be. Oh, step, you and I would get along so well. I man, I, that's exactly how I do my German classes. As I. First of all, yes, you have to be saying it out loud, but then I'm I'm adding all kinds of hand motions and you know physic physicality and acting and that, if you that, can smell only... it, get that your nose into it, <laughs> whatever, yeah. whatever you can can uh, get involved in. 
Do you have a family? Do you have children? You married? I'm married, uh, married to a, a, a black woman. Uh, I've, we had three children. She's, uh, two of whom have perished. Uh, she's the oldest daughter now is 58. Uh, 10 great grands, seven great grands. I'm originally, by the way, I'm originally from uh, Portland, Maine area. So we usually Maine. Yes, yeah, so I usually I travel back there. I've got a little little cottage back there. We used to go back every summer. And only because I can see it on the iPad registry that uh, your wife's name is Sheila. Yes, <laughs> she's a retired RN. Looks after me, sort of. <laughs> I was going to say she she probably takes good care of you then. Couldn't couldn't ask for better. So then, step. Uh, we talked about Greek and Hebrew. How is your German? Uh, a little bumpy little bumpy i can sort of make sense out of it but it's a little heavier lift i only took one year of it so in well, high school or college or seminary college well i i just heard that you know if little babies can pick it up you know you should be able to pick it up still i should <laughs> i haven't given i i can tell you this i haven't given it up okay <laughs> i know, probably know enough to be dangerous I, I don't know what would you what do you think you'd read if you learned German or relearned right. it? Right now I'm uh, fooling around with with Kant and his uh, doctrine of um, ethics because I think a lot of what's going on uh, in the left hand kingdom has to do with misguided ethics and a lot of it starts from Kant although. It runs through Hegel and Marx, but I, I like puzzles. I like puzzles. So, are you, if you for for somebody who is not familiar with philosophy? How would you boil down Kant's philosophy into an easy to grasp metaphor? Maybe. Kant's philosophy is. Uh, Normally, the, we understand that we have something outside of ourselves, and uh, in order to make uh, confirm the truth of that, we measure what we've our senses deliver to us, and then measure uh, uh, if that's uh, what the object is. Kind of uh, uh, turns that on its head. He puts everything that all these uh, objects are actually constructed by our mind. And then we what deliver the deliverances of the senses are then characterized by what are the, the, our, our noetic or epistemological equipment. And therefore we everybody but what's useful is that everybody is the same. so we, wants to uh, uh, adhere to Newton and that type of science, but uh, what things actually are in and of themselves, we can never know. So that's where you say today, all of the 
that's his that's his upheaval is is kind of like people saying what he said that uh you can't really know the truth so everybody gets to make up their own truth kind of a thing no not quite that's later with the existentialists uh the the uh That's his 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 philosophy. His ethics are determined by the, what's what's called the categorical imperative, which is uh, act in such a way that what you will is uh, you can make a universal rule so that everybody would agree to it. For example, I could wouldn't make a contract and enter into a contract knowing that I was going to lie and break that contract. No one would inter- enter into a contract with that understanding. So it has to be universally accepted. Uh, what he goes, what, what anchors it though, is his, his, his view of free will. And it's not very pretty, but it's pure. Uh, if you're if you're uh, familiar at all with the Enlightenment thinking, it fits fits right w- very well in, into into Enlightenment thinking. Well, well, with that, I think we can get into the gospel lesson because you know what you just said, step about uh, free will. You know, Jesus kind of touches on that with the opposite. Uh, with what he in his conversation with Nicodemus, precisely. Uh, so, Jeremy, if you want to read that, John chapter three. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said to him, "Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these miraculous signs you are doing unless God is with him." Jesus replied, "Amen, amen, I tell you." Unless someone is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Amen, amen, I tell you. Unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be surprised when I tell you that You must be born from above. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. How can these things be? asked Nicodemus. You are the teacher of Israel, Jesus answered, and you do not know these things? Amen, amen, I tell you. We speak what we know and we testify about what we have seen, but you people do not accept our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, who is in heaven. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So step 
why do you think Nicodemus came to Jesus at night? Well, to use uh, con- um, modern modern parlance, he didn't want to get canceled. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was uh, it was a furtive meeting, and it uh, uh, he he wanted he just wanted to keep it private. He wanted to keep it private. There's an interesting uh, aspect of that text, though, uh, where Jesus says, uh, or Nicodemus says, no one can do these miraculous signs that you are doing. Now, this is a third chapter of John. What miraculous signs had Jesus been doing? That, that's a good the The one, actually, the I one. guess I... I can well. You could maybe say when he saw in chapter in chapter one he saw Philip or Nathaniel under the fig tree, which is not a very spectacular one, but uh, maybe some supernatural going on there. But yes, just the one, and even the one that you're talking of the the changing water into wine. I assume, yes, uh, is uh, even that one. He he kind of did it in a clandestine way that people didn't know where the wine had come from except for the ones who drew the water or the water out there's there's another aspect i don't know if it may be reading something into this but uh one could also read it out uh no one can do these things unless god is with him so it's a a, almost a, a a manual acknowledgement technically imano Emo L with him, God. Uh, God with uh, God with us, God in the flesh. Yeah, God with. But he didn't know what he was saying. That's the problem. Uh, one one uh, casts their thought to uh, chapter five, where Jesus says, uh, "You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they that speak of me." This is what this is. This is the Nicodemus that came to Jesus at night. Jeremy, what is what does Jesus mean when he talks to Nicodemus about being born again? That's from the NIV or the way the EHV translates it of being born from above. Yeah, either way that you that you translate it is uh, it's talking about. I always like to tell my students that your soul has to be born. Your body is born when you're you're conceived and then your mother gives birth to your body. And that's the one Nicodemus was thinking about uh, and comparing it to. And then, it, but your soul also has to be born. Your, your, your soul is actually still born. And so whether it's from above or born a second time, either way, it's a birth that only God can give to you. You and can't then decide he, to to be. You can't. Uh, a baby can't can't choose to be conceived or born. And the same with your soul. Your soul can't choose to or decide to be uh, come alive. I think a useful reflection is if we read this, the contrast from chapter one of John's Gospel where he came unto his own, and his own received him not. 
but to as many as received him, he gave the full right to become children of God who were born not of the, and there's a, not, nat not naturally, not, not by choosing, not by uh, random selection, but of God. So I, I think John's authorship is, is playing on that here. Perhaps that's too much. I don't No, I think, I think that's right. And then he's talking about uh, being born again, born from above through water and the spirit. And you know, he's obviously talking then about baptism. And it's just interesting that for us here at Water of Life, God's timing that I'm going to be baptizing this Sunday when I'm preaching on this text. On, uh, I'm going to be baptizing a little uh, five-month-old baby named Jovi, that it's the granddaughter of one of our members. And the, the mom lives down in, in North Carolina. And when she was looking for a church down there, she said they're all mega churches and they all dedicate their babies and they don't baptize. And she wanted her baby baptized. And when she was defending it to her own family in a group text, she pulled out her catechism and pulled out passages like this about all, the meaning of baptism and what baptism does. And she even uh, had a relative that said, well, babies can't understand. And then she rightly said, it's not about understanding. That's not what baptism is. I was just very proud of this mom that's probably been separated from the church for a while. And yet she remembered enough of scripture of her being catechized to pull out her catechism and then defend the doctrine of baptism. That's wonderful. I mean, it, it, it's wonderful. Uh, baptism uh, sticks. Bapti baptism sticks to you. And so the Holy Spirit continually, unless you shoo him away, elects to work through that water and word until he takes us home. I, I would say to the family member uh, who was firing back at her, um, based on Jesus comparison here to physical childbirth, does a baby have to understand uh, and intellectually grasp being born in order to be born? Right. And there's, there's a, a, you can go further for if you want to tease it out. I mean, which one of us understands the Trinity or what? I mean, it's stupid. It's just, it's just a uh, uh, jejun, immature. Yeah, and that's what we were talking about too when I met with the mother and then the grandmother, our member, and we went through a simple Bible study on baptism. And, you know, just looking at the blessings of baptism, like you said, Step, it's something that's with us for the rest of our lives, that God has placed his spirit in us. He has made us his children. He has washed us clean. He has connected us with Christ's resurrection and his death in baptism. We're clothed with Christ. Uh, and these aren't just pictures. These are real things that happened. Uh, on Tuesday, I, uh, on Tuesday, I went uh, with our men's and women's Bible study group. Uh, we went to the movie theater 
and they watched, or I watched with them, Jesus Revolution, which is a pretty good movie. And what was, what was interesting was that I had a number of the ladies sitting in front of me and the main character played by Kelsey Grammer as the pastor. He's in church and he holds up a little, you know, individual glass of wine, except they said in the movie it was grape juice. And he said, this represents Christ's blood. And all the ladies, that entire row in front of me, I audibly in the theater said, uh-uh, <laughs> that's Christ. It's real present. And I, I, I leaned next to the guy sitting next to me. I said, uh, those are real Lutherans up there. And, you know, because they understand the same thing with baptism. It's not just a symbol. It really does work these things. Uh, Mike, Michael, I want to point out, so it, to our listeners, before we started recording, uh, Michael and I learned a new word, dilettante, uh, dilettante, and uh, it means somebody who's a dabbler, a uh, lover of the fine, it's a lover of the fine arts. Maybe you could call yourself just a lover of the fine arts uh, or admirer who uh, kind of just is an armchair quarterback in whatever field you're in, a dilettante. Well, Michael, he uh, he gave he taught us another new word. Um, did you catch jejun? I did catch it, but like Not, dilettante, I just ignored it too because I didn't know what that word meant either. But I I know I've heard jejun before, so I actually know this. And if you listen to what he said, he, he taught he taught us the context. It's uh, immature or uh, a childish kind of. Is that jejun? Yes, that's how I meant it. So. Sometime I'm, sometime I'm going to call you June. Very good. Uh, <laughs> Not so, in front of your wife. <laughs> so, Step, uh, how does Jesus teach total depravity of humanity with Nicodemus? And then if you want to maybe apply that with what you were talking about before, with how does what Jesus teach about total depravity uh, fit in with what Kant and other philosophers have taught? Well, he uses it, to, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And he's using it as the um, fallen Adam, our old, our old uh, nature, old sinful nature. And uh, which fits perfectly well with how Nicodemus is answering his questions. Namely, shall I, uh, old man, uh, be born again from his mother? Uh, Jesus already tipped Nicodemus off by being born from above. This is not your doing. This is God's work. Uh, Kant and, and, and most philosophers, most philosophers uh, think that that's a bunch of nice stories. They think that that's, uh, you know, if that helps you, uh, but it's not real. They so how do, do not, they do how, not believe? How do the philosophers view that we're, we are born? Then are we just neutral? Are we good? Well, this is a it's a loaded question. There's a bunch that the uh, the most no. This just just uh, this is natural. You know, the big fish eats the little fish. You know, it's this is just nature. And it's sometimes kind, sometimes isn't. Uh, 
And the right. only uh, thing maybe, human... Go ahead. Uh, maybe a good way to rephrase the question is, are there any philosophers out there? Who, obviously, no philosopher would ever figure out the gospel. But are there philosophers out there that have uh, what we would call biblical understanding of man's fallen nature? Would, would they... Are there philosophers that would agree people are blind spiritually and, and dead and hostile to uh, God if there is a God? The short answer is no. Uh, Luther tells us in, in the small called articles that the original sin is such a, a grave depravity that it can only be learned from Holy Scripture, that reason cannot believe that uh, we're that bad off. Now, if you would want to take, for example, St. Augustine as a philosopher, as a theologian philosopher, I mean, he had a notion of it. He had a notion, obviously, of, of uh, sin, but that's that's mixing the two. The... the uh, Died in the world, secular philosophers have, have no interest in that. And it cannot, it cannot, they cannot un penetrate it because only the Holy Spirit can give us that knowledge through the revealed word. We, I think we, we uh, do ourselves to, uh, or don't give ourselves enough credit or give him enough credit that this is exclusive. This is a sola. This is a sola. Jeremy, what is Jesus teaching when he describes the work of the Holy Spirit this way? The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. Well, I like uh, Step's strategy before of uh, making a modern application of Nicodemus didn't want to get canceled when he met at night. So I'm going to try the same thing and say, um, there's no such thing as a remote control for the Holy spirit. You, uh, you can't say I'm going to compartmentalize. I'm going to, I'm going to arrange my presentation of God's word in such a way that it will be irresistible that, uh, you can't, emotionally manipulate someone into believing God's word, uh, you might do everything perfectly right, and still they would uh, stubbornly and sinfully reject it. And at the same time, you might think uh, that was just a lousy uh, presentation of, of the gospel, uh, and yet it's still sunk in with somebody uh, that you would never have guessed, and uh, they, they became a believer. Uh, or they were strengthened in their faith when you didn't think that they would be, and uh, and that's that's what the Holy Spirit does. He he blows he he blows wherever he wants to, and uh, sometimes he brings people to faith, and sometimes he uh, the, he lets them resist him. Um, yeah. Well, and with that, uh, I was, can I go ahead? Go ahead, sir. Uh, I think what underscores what Jeremy is, was saying uh, uh, is, is that um, it's monergism. It's monergism. It's sola gratia. 
I mean, it's all, it's by, by God's grace alone, when and where it pleases him. Uh, Dr. Chemnitz in his second volume of, on uh, Trent, uh, in his introduction of the sacraments in general, said something to the effect of that uh, the Greeks used the word mysteries uh, for the sacraments. And they said for holy baptism and the uh, uh, Lord's Supper, because they, under, in with and under them, there is hidden uh, the, these divine truths that reason cannot penetrate, nor can our senses, but it is only revealed by the word of God alone. And I think that that gives, the more I allow myself to be uh, 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 wooed by that uh, recognition, the happier I am. To pick up on what you were saying before, Jeremy, again, going back to that movie, Jesus Revolution, and I think it was a very well done movie, uh, historical, it was before I was around. And yet talking with our members afterwards, one of them said, well, you can see the emotionalism you know, that captured the people. You know, people are, it's, it is uh, from the Time Magazine article in, you know, that was written based on this Jesus revolution that uh, hippies were coming to faith. And yet what you were saying, Jeremy, is you could see it in the movie, and I think they portray it very well, is they also try to bring about an emotionalism and kind of program the Holy Spirit. And yet, again, in the movie that uh, the Holy Spirit touched people's lives that uh, people were not reaching, you know, that begins with an old uh, staid congregation that well, they are not welcoming to the hippies. And then the Holy Spirit just keeps bringing more and more people in, people that are addicted to drugs and alcohol and sex and so forth. And yet the Holy Spirit blows over them. And then they're baptized and saved. And, and it's, it is a wonderful thing. And, and yet we have to be very careful that we don't program the Holy Spirit. One quick thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that the article of faith that, that Jesus is touching on in this, this particular text is conversion. Conversion. And that none of us know. We, I mean, we know how how the Holy Spirit uses the, the means of grace, but we don't know how he affects that in the heart. Well, to use that, to pick up on that, then uh, when Jesus is talking about conversion, what is he, how does he make the comparison then with Moses and the bronze snake? Well, it's from the lesser to the greater. The you know the the lesser is is Moses and the snake. The greater is Jesus on the cross. That that uh, uh, formula of, of interpretation that Moses and the snake in the wilderness. The people were bitten by uh, uh, poisonous snakes and they would die, but God gave them an alternative, a means by which they would be saved from that death. And the greater is that death itself, Christ himself, will uh, save the entire world. His uh, vicarious satisfaction, substitutionary atonement, 
for the for the entire world. And so it's the lesser to the greater, which is common in, in, in that period. And, you know, I liked what you said, Step, about conversion. Uh, Pastor Reckley from First Evan down the road with us to share the school with us. Uh, I was listening to his chapel devotion with our little little students this week. And I never thought of it this way when he talked about the the people, the Israelites that were bitten. He said they they didn't have to look up at that snake. They didn't, if oh, they, they didn't did. believe in it. You know, they didn't look up. And I never thought about that, that there would be people that would be silly enough, stupid enough to not look up at the snake. But the comparison is the same way what you were saying to the lesser to the greater. People are silly enough, stupid enough to not look up to Jesus as their savior. Regrettably. Yeah. You, you just reminded me of some artwork that I once put on a bulletin cover f- to illustrate this passage. And it was of the snake in the desert with the children of Israel. And there were people like looking, look, you know, kind of crawling on the ground to look up at it. But then one that I never thought of was it was a mother who was holding up her little infant and uh, like getting her infant to look at the snake. And I never, you always think of like maybe older children or adults getting bitten, but uh, there's no reason to believe that there wouldn't have been infants that were bitten too. And it kind of goes back to what we were saying before about conversion and babies. Uh, Does a baby have to understand something in order to look at it? No, they they can look at it without having an intellectual grasp of it. In the same way, they can have faith without intellectually grasping what the object of their faith is as well. The uh, agreed, agreed. Uh, I think Nagel might have written this in, in uh, one of the liturgies but, uh, of a baptism that, that uh, when we bring a child to holy baptism, we confess what baptism will work in the child. We confess that what baptism, what God is uh, intending to work through this means, uh, not that the, the baby or the, or the adult uh, has achieved something. And I think it's interesting, too, in that what was biting the people and cursing them to death was a serpent that was then made into bronze and put up on a pole. You know, the curse became the salvation and Jesus, you know, it says that anyone who is, anyone is who, everyone who is cursed was hung up on a tree. Jesus is cursed, and yet that is our salvation. Uh, I, I just find that very interesting that Jesus takes what, you know, is killing them and making that the Savior. And then, Jeremy, how did God express his great love for the world? He gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What does that verse mean? Uh, Jesus came down in human flesh, was born of a virgin. Uh, He lived a sinless life and then uh, died an innocent death to pay for all of our sins. And, uh, 
whoever believes that shall not perish and and instead will have eternal life. So I'm preaching on this text for this Sunday and my, my theme is questions in the darkness. And I, I make the, the point that basically any question that people are going to ask, you can really answer with John 3, verses 16 and 17. You know, that's why it's so popular and why we memorized it, because it is that, that gospel in a nutshell, like we've learned it from little on. So I encourage our people to, to memorize it. And if they haven't memorized it, uh, you know, put it into your mind, into your heart, and then use that. And then also, uh, I, I brought up in the sermon is people often are afraid to share their faith because they don't know the Bible well enough. And that's probably true. You know, we can always know the Bible better. But if you don't know the Bible that well, just know a couple of good Bible stories and share those. Jesus does that. He points to an Old Testament lesson, and then he can teach teach about that. Anything else you guys want to bring up with John 3? Quick one. Yeah. Uh, if you take connect this back and forward, here is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Again, being uh, hung on the cross. So that uh, snake, snake put, put up on the pole. I think that, I think that the snake on the pole was, was that uh, Melanchthon's insignia? Well, that could be. Uh, Jeremy, you want to get into the epistle lesson? Romans 4. What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered according to the flesh? If indeed Abraham had been justified by works, he would have had a reason to boast, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to a person who works, his pay is not counted as a gift, but as something owed. But to the person who does not work, but believes in the God who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Indeed, the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not given to Abraham or his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness that is by faith. To be sure, if people are heirs by the law, faith is empty and the promise is nullified. For law brings wrath. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. For this reason, the promise is by faith so that it may be according to grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's descendants, not only to the one who is a descendant by law, but also to the one who has the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of God, Abraham believed him who makes the dead alive and calls non-existing things so that they exist. So, Step, how does the example of Abraham silence all who would insist that one must carry out the works of the law in order to be saved? Well, Abraham is the father of, of uh, the Israelite nation. And Scripture plainly says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And it was uh, uh, not by works, although but by faith, by faith in the promise, which is, is a, uh, 
implementation of what was given to to the curse of the serpent in Genesis 3. Yeah, and Paul brings it up later that technically Abraham was a Gentile when when God called him. And that's the whole point that Paul's trying to make in these chapters with the Jews that are living in Rome is that comparison between works and grace and Jews and Gentiles. You know, to understand, you know, Abraham was a Gentile at, in the beginning before he was circumcised. What does it mean, Jeremy, that Abraham was credited with righteousness? It's an accounting term. Uh, it, you can you can say that uh, something was was credited to you or, or debited from you. Um, I might just be making up words there, but uh, it's saying we're going to count it as though you have ten thousand uh, dollars, even if you don't. And uh, if that's what the bank statement says, then that is that's yours. It's been credited to you, and that's that's what um, Paul is saying here. That or in in long ago Moses said in Genesis that God counted it as righteousness for Abraham uh, when Abraham believed what God said. So, so step, uh, Paul writes in verse four, now can to I a t- person. In, can I hop in, in on that? Yep. Yep. I really prefer impute. Hmm. He imputed it as righteousness. Uh, I I think we lose out by not utilizing that word more often. I think it's a very great theological word or just a, a homespun way of saying it is he considered it as righteousness. The operative point though, is who's doing the crediting. So God says, if God says your credit's good, that's good enough for all of us, right? So, what do you yeah, what do you mean? You, what's the difference explain? between impu- imputation and credit? What's impute versus credit then? Well, I think I, I think he imputes righteousness, and he uh, it, it removes not uh, the non-imputation of sinfulness. So we're we're uh, declared. It's the you could make it a forensic term, although I, I think Jeremy's right. It, it, it uh, falls within the the, the economic uh, uh, vocabulary of justification. But uh, I just think that impu- if we look at uh, historically through our uh, Orthodox Lutheran uh, fathers, imputation was a was a solid word for. For uh, referring to this fact of uh, of the article of justification, what would be another context where, uh, just to help people understand what imputed means, like uh, when else is a time that something is someone imputes something to someone else or something like that? Talk more about the the meaning of impute. 
the the uh it in this context in, in particularly in, in this in the context of, of uh justification and righteousness of faith it's a a, a giving you are qualified as as righteous you are fully uh, uh, before God, Coram Deo, that you are is like you were in the garden. This is all this is I've taken it away from you. I've imputed the righteousness of God is given to you. And you are not uh, uh, guilty of what we all are. But that faith that Abraham had included Christ and his sacrifice, John 3.16. So to build on that uh, idea of gift and giver, Paul uses an illustration about work in verse 4. He says, Now to a person who works, his pay is not counted as a gift, but as something owed. So what is what's he getting at there with that illustration step? No one works for nothing. <laughs> I mean, I uh, suppose uh, some do, but, but uh, the and I think he's what what the the, the context is is he, he's speaking to uh, the Jews or Israel of his time, where works was the means by which they were expected to to uh, achieve a standing, a righteous standing before the living God. And, but Paul here, on the basis of Abraham, shows that it's not only the right uh, the, the, someone who works, because no works are qualified to be righteous, but actually God's largesse is such a, to such an extent that he qualifies the ungodly, which includes us all. And so it's a, a, an inc entirely inclusive uh, uh, act of sola gratia, by grace alone, that God has chosen this gift to rectify what uh, our old evil foe achieved in the garden. So, Jeremy, Paul says in verse 5, that God justifies the ungodly. We might think that uh, it should be God justifies the believer. Why is it so important that he uses that word ungodly? Well, because our, our sinful nature is so um, perverse that we even find ways to turn the good news of Jesus into a law that we can uh, uh, keep or parade before God as as something that that we can boast about, and so uh, even when it comes to things like faith or or believing, it, it's that's an activity that happens inside of me. So like, it, it's very easy for me then to take that faith and think that, you know, maybe that's the one thing that I did. Um, earlier step used the word monergism. It's all God's working. And uh, that's that's really what uh, what we see here. Paul 
saying when he says that he justified the ungodly, because if he said God justifies the believer, well, then, then we might be tempted to think, oh, good, my work of believing in Jesus is what makes me right with God. And uh, no, you were made right with God even before you were a believer. He justifies not the believer, but the ungodly. Right. And I think that's a good way of, of phrasing it. And then uh, tying it back to the gospel lesson, the ungodly is the flesh who gives birth to flesh. And the way to make us believers is the spirit gives birth to spirit. So in verse 15 step, Paul talks about a transgression and how it brings wrath. What is a transgression? Transgression in, in this passage is uh, uh, overstepping of the law uh, or the, uh, a tr uh, trespass is another way of translating that. And uh, where there is no law, there is no trespass of that explicit law, but that doesn't mean there is no sin. Yeah. When, when I taught this a few weeks ago to my teens, I talked about how uh, it seems like right now in our current American culture, we don't have any transgressions or trespasses because it's like the time of the judges. Everyone's doing whatever they want to do. But yet, even though our culture may overlook sins and not call them transgressions or trespasses, God still does, and he will still hold us accountable. And without faith, when we're the ungodly living according to our flesh, then we will endure God's wrath like Paul talks about here. So, Jeremy, the last question I have then is, why is Abraham referred to as the father of many nations? He, uh, first of all, gave birth in a miraculous way or he, he his wife gave birth he was able to father a child in a miraculous way that turned into uh well he more than one more than one time he he was the father of ishmael which is today the arab peoples and the father of isaac which is today the ethnically jewish peoples uh but more importantly uh he is the premier example of trusting what God says. And that's uh, when you're the premier example, uh, you, you, uh, you could be called the father of. So he's also the father of everybody who trusts what God says, everybody who is a believer in Jesus and, and takes God at his word. Um, they, are, uh, they are the children, uh, spiritually speaking, of Abraham. Yeah, because he goes on in... Romans chapter 9, Paul does to talk about the true spiritual Israel, and that would be us. And Lord willing, those in our churches, those who are listening to the podcast. Step, you got anything else you want to add to either of the two lessons we talked about today? Uh, no, not, not really. I mean, he's the father of the faithful, father of many nations, uh, ultimately via Christ. And his faith was not his work. His faith was a gift of God that had the object of his faith was the living God, was probably the Son of God, uh, pre-incarnate. 
that that uh, address this to him. All right, Jeremy, you got anything else you want to add? I think I'm talked out. <laughs> all right. Uh, it's been a long week for you. you. Had to go to school like all all five days this week. You haven't had to do That's that for a, a while. Such a weird thing. Yeah, I don't <laughs> know why they were expected to do that. Uh, all right. Before we close, I just want to mention again that uh, my new book, well, my only book, "Resisting the Dragon's Beast," is available for pre-purchase on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Gutenberg Press. Uh, this is Michael Zarling with Stephen Guggins and shed lightning on the matter. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>